Welcome to the Carrero Podcast. Before we get started today, we would like to inform our listeners that Carrero is supported by edX Global. It's an international nonprofit where we work with K-12 students as they work with their local and global communities, providing service learning activities. In 2022, we are asking for your support in raising $20,000. It is to assist our students and their activities in creating gardens for schools and communities, purchasing and delivering blankets for the homeless, providing curriculum for teachers across the world, purchasing backpacks and filling them with educational items for students in need, and collecting and delivering food and toiletry items for the local homeless organizations. You can donate with Venmo using at edacts-global, or you can go to our website, which is www.edaxglobal.org, spelled edacts G-L-O-B-A-L dot org and donate. We appreciate your support. Thank you. Hi, this is Malia Hoffman. I'm here with Fred Ramirez. Today, our guest is William Butler. Currently living in New Orleans, William Butler has been writing since the 1950s and has been published in various literary journals, as well as publishing several volumes of poetry and a book of short fiction. He continues to explore the depth and width of the human heart through his poetry his belief in nature and personal experience are driving forces in his writings. Hi, Bill. Thanks for joining us today and sharing your experiences in your life and your story. We wanted to know if there was a moment in your life that inspired you to write. Partially, the inspiration came from the fact that I couldn't paint. I I wanted to be an artist, uh, oh. and I could do uh, still life or buildings, architecturals, things like that. But when it came to the human form or face, I was so inept. And I, of course, at about 15 years of age in Memphis, Tennessee, there were very few art schools that were available to people uh, in those days. And so having done that and gone up into Arkansas on a camping trip and been uh, looking at a stream on a July day and the steam was coming up and instead of painting, I sat there and I said, um, Mystical Creek, when the heat of the day rises, and that kicked it off. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) It sort of ruined my life from then on. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and that's that's what I've heard from from writers is that it's it's pleasurable pain <laughs> that <laughs> moments of creative insanity very few moments of creative insanity generally donut around boredom <laughs> so wow wow you know and that's you know yeah, we're we'll 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 get into the writing beat because the writing process, at least for Malia and 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 myself, is totally different. 
You know, we, you know, there's structure that we have to do within this box. And to be honest, it, it ruined my creative thought, um, you know, be, because we, you know, we have to go by APA guidelines and it has to be blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, and so, and so, yeah, we'll, we'll get, we'll get into that. But one of the things that I'm, that I'm really curious about, and I remember, um, one, one of the best lesson plans I ever did as a high school history teacher was I was, I was going to be, we were going to be talking about the 1960s. And so, and so I, I, I called up this parent and said, Hey, do you want to come in and talk about what, 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 what life was like? He's like, um, he's like, well, why me? I'm like, well, were you, did you live through the sixties? He's like, yeah, I barely did. Am I perfect? Come on in. Yeah. But it was, but it was a different per, per perspective for the, you know, for the reason that what, what I remember briefly about the 1960s, because he was, he was born and raised in California. What was life like in Memphis during the, during the 1960s? Memphis is a very conservative river town. Uh, it could have at one point been larger than Atlanta, but wow. lost all the manufacturing and industrial base that Atlanta uh, incurred and uh, welcomed. Uh, Memphis went through some early white flight due to integration. It couldn't be accepted by the city fathers. And so consequently, we lost... Um, those industrial jobs, which had already were going to the Midwest as well as further south and out west, uh, eventually becoming Macalidores, I guess, then on the border. Um, and we never renewed that base. So Memphis became and already was a cotton hub and a, uh, a wood flooring uh, hub. Uh, we logged out most of the um, trees in the, uh, you know, the, the South to make flooring and other things. It was a very conservative uh, town uh, and a very conservative time. Integration, again, was a primary on everyone's minds. Uh, my parents sold the house that we'd grown up in and um, fled to uh, uh, South uh, to get away from uh, African-Americans moving into the neighborhood. Wow. Well, so so how did that how did that affect you as a now how how old were you at, at this time? I was born in forty two, so I was eighteen in nineteen sixty. Wow! And of course, gone through the Elvis Presley early years and rock and roll that come along, and uh, I was a musician. I played drums and and uh, junior high school, high school, and was playing drums for a Scottish scholarship at the University of Memphis. So uh, yeah, I was accepting of all people who could play music. It didn't matter to me what color they were. And uh, I couldn't understand it. My sister and I were both very liberal early on in our years and never yeah. could understand the uh, intransigence of our parents. Uh, so uh, then the war came along. I got married and before then and the war came along and things changed a bit. Well, talking about the music part, because this is this is one of the areas that I'm fascinated about. 
being a music guy in Memphis in the 1960s, how was is, how is that? There was music everywhere. Uh, it, it, un, and yet, I'll, I'll harken back to where I am now, New Orleans. has yeah. The culture here of music is so much vaster than it is in Memphis. Uh, here, the other day, I was walking down Rampart Street and a bicycler came by. He had a bass uh, stand-up bass strapped to his back on his bicycle, and on his delivery basket in the front was a tuba, and he's got a Bluetooth speaker <laughs> oh God, blaring cool. at him, rock and roll <laughs> as he drifts along. Music is everywhere here. Memphis, it's, it was located particularly in the African-American community with Stacks and American and High Records. All of those things were going uh, and proliferating in the 60s. That was the beginning of Stax Records and um, San, uh, Sun Studios with uh, Sam Phillips and, yeah. and all those guys. And so th- there was there was a culture there, but it was growing with people about my age rather than our parents uh, and, and the city fathers who continued to see it as a secondary piece of the uh, culture in Memphis. So, but uh, yeah, you know, you, we could go to the... Uh, Shell, which was an outdoor uh, music uh, theater, and uh, hear almost any kind of band. I think the Almond Brothers came through, Cactus, uh, Pure Prairie League. It was endless the music we could, uh, you know, hear in, in town. And of course, for me, it was, and I loved jazz. I loved Broadway music. Uh, uh, it, I've always been into the music scene. I mean, I love international music, reggae. Turag music, you name it. I'm sort of one of those music file people that are like, I like that. <laughs> what is that? Hell, I heard Klezmer the other day down on the uh, Frenchman Street, which is about five blocks long from and not far from me. And Klezmer is a Jewish clarinet, accordion, violin, bass uh, with a clarinet very prominent in it, but it becomes jazz-like. And, oh, uh, yeah. okay. I had to stop. It stopped me in my tracks, and I was like, I've heard that before. I had to go back and look, and there was a quartet in playing one of the little clubs there, wailing away. <laughs> you wouldn't see that in Memphis. <laughs> Have you thought about writing about the 60s in Memphis? Uh, I probably did write. <laughs> uh, I've been writing continuously, but whether I'll ever find them again. I think I have some old things from the 60s. I haven't gone back to look. Some of them are embarrassing. So I, when I look at them, I go, oh, oh yeah, that's <laughs> push that aside. Uh, the atmosphere here has rejuvenated my interest in music and writing about music. And, um, oh, okay. Um, and so I tend to be more current in what I write about. Okay. You know, um, rumor has it you were a, pretty good distance runner um i you know i don't know who i got that from <laughs> I, I don't have a clue <laughs> so um um so yeah I, I i i was talking to my to my to my brother nash and he was uh just yesterday um and then uh, we were talking and then i that i mentioned that you were you were going to be on he's like oh tell him to tell his running stories. He was a great runner and tell you know, tell you. So, um, so yeah, can you, can you share some of the, some of your, some of your running stories? Uh, Nash is very nice. 
um, whenever Nash came to Memphis, he lived in Jackson, Tennessee, which was about 90 minutes from Memphis. But when he came down to compete, we all in his age group would go, oh, no, because he was so good. We would chase him. I enjoyed it. For me, not having been an athlete in high school or at junior high school, I played football because the coach felt sorry for me. And I could play either in the band or play football. And he would tell me the day before the game whether I was going to play or not. <laughs> I was still slightly built. And uh, when I got to high school, the coach looked at me and said, uh, Bill, um, you're going to get hurt. You better go back and play in the band. So, but anyway, coming <laughs> to running in my thirties was just uh, an eye-opening experience. I loved it. It took hard work, and once you, if you had some talent and worked hard, sure enough, you were successful. And there's something about it. I think there was a book I read when I was in my, uh, probably in my early twenties. It was called the. Um, Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. It's an English book. You're probably familiar with it, maybe, of the title. And uh, the book stirred me. Uh, and so when I began to run, I began to think in terms of, yeah, I enjoy the loneliness of it and the fact that while I run, I can gather my thoughts. I, I can, I began to actually, I'm eidetic, and I began to uh, see haiku in my head while I ran. Well, that's, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, I like the way that you um, understood the word loneliness because you said you enjoyed the loneliness of it. And I think that a lot of people might perceive that as a negative word. But I, I do know a lot of people who think of it as being therapeutic and um, meditative. And, Medi- um, and, I, and I like hearing you say that that's where like your creative juices sort of um, helped form. Are you still a runner? No, unfortunately, uh, bad knees and uh, atrial fibrillations begin to put an end to my uh, Mm -hmm. running. But the knees particularly, uh, my competitive juices were quelled when I began to have atrial fibs. In the middle of a race, I'd have to stop and go to the side of the road and try to gather myself uh, the breathing and heart rate back down before I picked back up. And by that time I was no longer uh, competing. I was finishing. Right. (laughs) And then the knees gave out. So, and I got tired of having a arthroscopic surgery on knees, but I walk, I walk a great deal down here. Everything's within walking distance of me here, grocery store, laundry, uh, you name it. I can, I can walk four miles and be in a completely different neighborhood. So were, were you, how, how were you active with, within the Memphis running community? I was one of the founders of the Memphis Runners Track Club. Oh, okay. It had been formed by another fellow who enjoyed track. And he didn't have the organizational ability to sustain a larger organi- a group. And three of us got together and decided we wanted to organize the Memphis Runners Track Club. And uh, Jack Rocket, Mike Cody, and myself got together. We flipped a coin. I became the editor of the newsletter. Jack lost and became the president. (laughs) And Mike Cody, who was an attorney, uh, drew up the charter. And uh, yeah, you know, I've always been a a gadfly too. So once my journalistic uh, 
efforts began to uh, irritate people, <laughs> I began to hear about it, and I, I decided just to become a runner. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, that's that's really cool, um, and yeah, because because that was that was one of the things in which which Nash was sharing was that yeah, you know, Bill's Bill's a very humble person, but he's, he's done a lot. Um, you know, and, and, and Nash, Nash wanted me to relay that, that, that to you. So I just let you know that. Um, yeah, while we, while I was running, I also raced sailboats, (laughs) um, (laughs) inland lake, uh, racing, uh, I had a lightning class sailboat. So on Sunday mornings, I would get my long run in and immediately come back jump in the car, go down to one of the impounded lakes of North Mississippi, put my sailboat together and go sail two races in a regatta and then come back to Memphis exhausted. So that they, <laughs> I had a varied career. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. Well, all adds to whatever I am. <laughs> you also shared that you write about the humorous sad or the human condition that you witnessed how has this changed over time? Well, I've, obviously, maturity has softened the uh, my outlook uh, on life. Uh, one can become fairly bitter in their 30s and 40s. Uh, and I think it takes the resolution of the 50s and 60-year-olds, and I'm in my late 70s now, to... So, uh, to begin to see the fact that uh, we're all in this together and ain't nobody going to come out of here alive, so you might as well enjoy it, uh, <laughs> be mindful, and, and try not to hurt anybody. Be gentle. I'm, a, I'm sort of a, a modern romantic, I guess, in my writing, my poetry. Are you willing to share a piece with us? Oh, yeah. We've got about, oh, how many? 15? 20. <laughs> <laughs> How about one? One should be good for now. One. Okay. All right. This one isn't part of uh, my trilogy. I have three books, by the way, I self-published. My most recent collection is called uh, uh, What Are You Keeping From Me? Uh, The earlier one was uh, Spilled Beer, Wet Paper. (laughs) And I have a collection of short fiction uh, called The River and Other Stories. But uh, this one is about uh, New Orleans. And it, when I published it on Facebook, I had a lot of positive comment about it. And I, so I'll read it. It's called The Artist Who Was a Butterfly. Eerily quiet Sunday morning on Royal at Orleans behind St. Louis Cathedral. One artist sprawls across the torn sidewalk, drawing butterfly wings on cheap paper, his labor piled by his side. As he stretches his arms in relief, He appears to be a resting butterfly, wings folded above the still form. I ask about his work. He refuses any intrusion, tightly draws his legs towards his chest, pulls his papers toward it. It has begun to mist. The early call to prayer sounds from the bell tower of the cathedral, hauntingly hollow from here. And I turn and walk quickly away, one backward glance hoping to catch his metamorphosis but he has already flown translucent wings, carrying him far above me over the tiled rooftops, leaving nothing behind but the memory. That's really, yeah, that's very visual. It is. And it appeals to all the senses, right? Sounds, 
Yeah, I love that. And, you know, and, and, and I and I kind of get a sense because uh, I've been fortunate through work in order to visit New Orleans probably like five or six times. Um, and so I, so yeah, I can totally see where you were standing. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that was, that was, that was really good. Um, now there's one of the, one of the things that, that I found as a, as a high school teacher was that there were a lot of gifted kids that, um, kind of like you that wanted to explore different, different avenues. Um, but education, how it, how it was when I was teaching and, and still it's very well, you have to do this, you have to do this in order to get here. Um, and here is always college. Um, what, what are some recommendations in which you would, you would give youth or even people like us that, that wanted to put pen to paper? Read, 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 read everything, read constantly, read fiction, good fiction, read good history. Uh, I have always been a voluminous reader uh, until the last few years. I have macular degeneration in both eyes, uh, so I have limited eyesight in the right eye. It's only peripheral vision. The left eye, I just had a cataract removed, so seeing better today, can actually see all without my close-ups. I can take these off and see you, but uh, uh, and so it's ended my reading. I now listen to audiobooks, which is still great, but um, I think for all writers, the only thing I've ever heard any of them tell me, and I've gone to many clinics from and uh, authors, uh, speaking tour events, and they all say read. Uh, the, uh, Larry Brown, who was a uh, Moxford, Mississippi, right out from Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, he was a Marine and a fireman in a small town of Oxford, Mississippi. But not particularly educated, but he wrote a number of really good books because, as he said, my mother made me read and read to us from the time I can remember. And wow. she read good literature. She wrote, you know, read the Bible to him, which in the South is the juiciest thing you can possibly have. It's the, you know, it's the reading temple for us to worship in. Uh, other than that, that your reading will, will bring you, will focus you into what your interest is in the writing end of it, whether it's fiction or whether it's history or whether it's uh, technical. Um, and I do know some technical writers. Yeah. I, you know, like in Fred and my research, we have learned that reading is the biggest indicator of success. And, um, and of course success is subjective, but, um, the just intellect and ability and how far people can go in school and, um, and determines, you know, how much money you make in, in life, which isn't always, you know, like a determining, determining factor of success, but, um, reading is the biggest gift you can give to your children and the thing that you can give to yourself. Right. So, um, and, and some people might want to try to publish and be afraid of that process. And um, what was that what what was that process like for you when you first started to publish? Um, and maybe how has it changed over time? 
initially I was, uh, I published a few things uh, in the 60s and early 70s, and then I stopped publishing. Uh, life got in the way of trying to publish. Uh, and it was just in recent years that a friend of mine, Eddie Tucker, who was a graphic designer at Memphis, had been reading some of the things I put on Facebook. I publish on Facebook daily almost. Uh, mm-hmm. And he said in his inimitable voice, Bill, uh, you ought to publish this. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I said, well, Eddie, that's great, but I don't have the money to publish. Uh, uh, and he said, Amazon will publish you free. And I said, well, I, you know, going through the process uh, of putting it all together, I just don't know if I have the expertise. And he said, I'll handle that for you for a small fee and, Sure enough, he put it together easily enough. Uh, I gathered the material, gave it to him. He sort of had a nod on whether he agreed with me or not on what I was going to uh, publish. And after that, he's been my angel behind me saying, put out some more. You, I like that short story. Do you have any mother, others? Let's put it out. And uh, so, since, you know, that's the easiest way. What the drawback on that is you can't go into a bookstore and put books on the shelf. There are distributors who demand that you have a specific code that the, is issued to you uh, when you go to the Library of Congress. And uh, that code doesn't come from Amazon. So if you don't have that code, they won't distribute. So it means that I either have to go back through the process of getting the code or I have to hand carry books and plead with bookstore owners to carry this. And, and of course, poets, what do you, you know, you sell 10 books a year and you're like, <laughs> yeah, I'm climbing that mountain. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, as I always joke, you know, I got a royalty check last month for $3.97 and I think I'm going into a tax bracket. <laughs> <laughs> now, was... So was was writing your your career choice, or were you were you involved in anything else besides writing? Uh, I started off at First National Bank in Memphis, which is now First Tennessee Bank, on their training program, uh, primarily because I was married and I had an in and to, to get into the training program. Uh, and the army came along; I had to drop out and I came back into the bank and after about six weeks there I went no I can't do this anymore so I went upstairs there was an ad agency upstairs in the same building and I sat in the couch and I said I'd like to write ad copy and they said can you Uh, what have you ever done I said no but they gave me a list of their clients and told me to write a couple of ads I did I showed a little talent they hired me Uh, I was a junior writer there went to another agency became a, a writer there then a creative director at a very small agency and so writing was the line of least resistance. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I think, you know, like you mentioned and you alluded, like a lot of parents don't want their kids to go into writing, and especially poetry, right? Because there's no money in it. No money. Right. So I, how, do you, how do you grapple with that? How do you grapple with following your passion? Um keeping yourself fed in a house over your head. Um, and, you know, like, I guess having a career, like, how do you balance those things? 
uh, it's difficult, but you have to, if you're driven, if you have the passion and the fire that burns for you to do, whether you paint or you write or you fly fish, <laughs> uh, you have to make that time. Um, there's an American writer who's passed away now. He was uh, Raymond Carver, who is known now, I think, as the uh, modern father of American short stories, uh, wrote a book of essays called uh, Fires, and it talks about the fact that he would he was selling insurance, working an insurance company. He hated it, but he had a family. He had to pay, you know, pay for food, rent, cars. He had, they had very little money, but he worked hard at it. But he would wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and write until it was time for him to go to the office. So if that passion is there, you, you find the way. It's, uh, I don't know any other way. To, it's nothing, there's nothing easy about it. Uh, yeah. Every time I pick up a poem that I've written and uh, start to read it, I, I want to go back and redo it. <laughs> uh, words mean things and uh, expressions come into your head that you want to incorporate into your writing. So do you feel like your your work is never done? Never. Never done. Uh, I always have a new a, a new scene I want to write, a new, mm-hmm. a new thought. You know, I think I'm my own worst critic. Yep. I think uh, periodically I'll write uh, the same poem over and over again, and it changes <laughs> every time I write it. Yeah. yeah. I, I, think, I think that's a common feeling amongst writers. I, I haven't yet met a writer who's like, I think I'm pretty good at this. I'm pre- I think I'm pretty great. I mean, I am very self-conscious about my my writing, and as you know, Fred said, our, our writing is very uh, boring. <laughs> I'll I'll say that you know what I mean. It's not quite as creative, right? But like, I'm Correct. still very um, self-conscious about that writing, and I've been writing for a while now. And um, you know, is that is that a thing that you feel? Do you feel self-conscious about your writing? Um, Absolutely. Or, yeah. Okay. I had a, I've had a couple of readings, and in the middle of the reading, I want to go. Let me go back here and change this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't really, that line didn't it doesn't sound right now. My my sister who taught English uh, on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi for thirty three years is my editor, supporter, cheerleader, uh, uh, and she will periodically say, "Now, don't forget." Your poem should end, the line should end when you need to take a breath. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can take a big breath <laughs> and talk for quite a while. One of the things that I'm fascinated about, because I've, I've been to both New Orleans and, and Memphis, and I, and I know a lot of people that have been to both. So... So, settle this. Which place has the best food? Oh, I've been to New York, San Francisco. I've been in Europe. New Orleans has the most diverse food culture. I passed by a place on St. Bernard Street, which is not too far. It's called D's Exquisite Seafood. 
And (laughs) exquisite seafood. On the corner, uh, three blocks up, is Cajun seafood. Uh, Right down the street is Budsy's Thai street food. Uh, Wasabi sushi is down the street. Melba's Pooboys is down four blocks that way. Uh, And it's not just all seafood. It's not all just Cajun or Creole there are French restaurants here. One of the oldest restaurants, Arnaud's, was built in 1890-something. Galatois on Bourbon Street was built in 1904, 1911. They still serve au cuisine. Uh, and it's, you know, Emeril Lagasse made his chops down here. Uh, he still has restaurants down here. Um, which is uh, brings a funny story, if you've got a second anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when my youngest son and I and my wife then were in uh, Gulf Coast vacationing, we went to a restaurant called Fish Out of Water. And as we came in, Emerald and his retinue were coming out, and he was very nice, and he stopped and stooped over. And my son was about five, four or five years old, and he said, well, young man, what do you think, uh, what would you recommend we eat today? And, uh, and my son, Bren, said, uh, try the octopus tentacles. <laughs> and Emerald was doubled over. Oh my God! Yeah, you don't expect to hear that from a kid. And he, and he didn't, you know, not even on the menu. He just made it up of his little oh, brain. Oh my gosh, that's so. Anyway, cute. yeah, it, it's there's Cajun, there's Italian. Uh, there's a great Italian restaurant right down the street. Mm. It's there's a place called Dat Dog. It has all kinds of hot dogs. Oh, I don't know. That's we could go on about it, but. The music and food yeah. of the uh, uh, African, Caribbean, Spanish, French culture that built this city uh, is still so prevalent here. Uh, the women of color who actually ran Storyville, the, the uh, prostitutes on uh, in Storyville, were the only free women. Hmm. The white women really were kept in home, you know, at home. They were not to cook. They were kept out of the sun, and the women of color could move about the city freely. They could Hmm. develop cultural uh, anomalies in food and and music and things, anyway. Wow. You you know, I I remember my my first time there was a a professor who who invited some, some of us graduate students down there and, and we went to this one restaurant and they were they were ordering and so it got to me and I said okay I'll um I will have the gumbo I will have the jambalaya I will have the, the Louisiana red 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 fish and my professor was looking at me he's like Fred we're we're, we're gonna be here for like five days I'm like I'm starting now that <laughs> <laughs> I need to eat and I, you know, and I don't know if I'm, you know, ever, ever going to come back down here, but yeah, it was two houses from me on the corner is Loretta's authentic pralines, uh, the pralines, which are the, uh, you know, the sugary, uh, sweet down here, but she also has beignets, the best beignets, mm. which is a French, but she has savory beignets as well as the traditional oh. sweet beignets. So you can order the, uh, crab meat stuffed beignet with a hmm. cream sauce and here I'm beginning to drool here. Yep, <laughs> um, mouth is watering. Yeah. And, uh, peanut butter and jelly beignet. She has yeah. a hamburger beignet. She has a breakfast beignet. It's, wow. it's, 
and it's a very small hole in the wall place. Cool. Yeah, very cool. And I'm I'm gaining weight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do like the vibe in New Orleans. It's it is certainly a a fun, carefree sort of feel, very artistic. I love that. Um, and I love that you're wearing your hat and your your vest oh, yeah. to you know to embrace the the Mardi Gras spirit and the New Orleans vibe. Um, I didn't wear my uh, green sequined uh, coat that I wear for the parades. Oh, okay. Save that one for later. It's a little early on a Sunday morning, huh? <laughs> Too bright. It blinds me. <laughs> we should have we should have had that for our, your headshot for the um, for the podcast. You can't take a picture of it. It dazzles. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Too many bright lights. Um, Well, Bill, I I just I'm just enamored by your um, by your stories and just just even listening to your voice as you read the poem was just very soothing. Um, As we wrap this up, we like to ask our guests what their call to action is. And this is the one thing that our listeners should take from you. Um, so what is your call to action? Since I'm 79 years old now, I try to tell my sons and whomever else I come across to please, please try to love one another. Mm -hmm. Try to be mindful of where you are in the world and where you are with everybody else in the world. Peace is so difficult to achieve and Loving one another is the first step in it. If you love yourself, you can love others. Um, that's my call. I love that. You're right. Thank you for having me, Molly. Malia. Yeah. And Malia? Malia, yes. Mm-hmm. Fred. Well, thank you for joining us. Really enjoyed it. I want to go check out some more of your, your writing and your work. Um, and, and thanks for you know making the world a better, beautiful place. Thank you. Don't take care.